On this episode, I sit down with Julie Butner, president and CEO of the Tarrant Area Food Bank. We talk about her growing up as an Army brat, her experience and time at TCU, and how her experience prepared her for leading the Tarrant Area Food Bank during the pandemic. You're going to want to take this down. Well, Julie, thank you for joining me on Take This Down. It's a privilege and honor to sit down with you and have this conversation. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to jumping in and uh, not only learning a little bit more about you, but allowing my audience to learn a little bit more about you as well. Oh, thank you, Ty. I appreciate being here. So, you know, I kind of start every episode off by telling, you know, my guests why I invited them on the show. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, I'm biased, but I get to serve <laughs> on the board at the Tarrant Area Food Bank. And I see all the great things that you're doing and how the impact that you're making uh, in the community in, in Tarrant County and even in the surrounding counties. And I still don't think that the general public or at least my network know one, who you are, the leader, the brains behind the operation. Uh, and so I wanted to use this opportunity to, for one, to people to get to know you, but also to thank you for your leadership and what you have done. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, and so who is Julie Butner at her core? Oh, my goodness. Well, Julie Butner uh, is a Army brat, first and foremost. I grew up traveling not only uh, across the United States, but also uh, in many foreign countries. My father had a foreignary uh, specialty in um, Latin American countries. So I spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C. and in Mexico. And I came to Fort Worth to go to TCU. So uh, Texas Christian University has an early admission program, and um, I was a junior in high school when I applied to come to TCU, uh, did not complete uh, high school, actually came straight into TCU in this early admission program. The running joke in my family was that, man, if you don't graduate from college, you're going to be in a world of hurt because you don't have a high school diploma either. But I landed up here in Fort Worth and uh, just had a great experience, was so glad uh, to be a horned frog. Met my husband, who was from uh, Fort Worth. Uh, we married, and uh, he was stationed uh, in Germany as his first assignment. So we lived overseas in our first three or four years of of marriage. I too uh, uh, was a military officer. I went to TCU on an ROTC scholarship. Uh, and so that was right during Desert Storm. And I was activated to uh, serve at the 98th General Hospital in Nuremberg, Germany. But that's kind of the core of my being really centers around that military experience because I grew up in the military, my father being an Army officer, gotcha. but then went on to become a, an Army officer myself and marry an Army officer. So uh, that certainly certainly is at my core. Gotcha. You know, that's a lot to unpack. And if I can, I want to go back a little bit. You know, I always hear mixed stories of how it's like growing up as a military kid. Mm -hmm. You know, how was your experience? Was it something that you enjoyed or something like, oh, we're moving again? How was it? 
You know, it, that's so true. Um, I have a brother and a sister, and I will say that I enjoy being an Army brat, and I think my brother would tell you the same thing. My sister, who was a little bit more introverted, I think struggled uh, a little bit more about moving, but I always saw it as an adventure. My dad was really good about, you know, pumping up the family, you know, where we're going, learning about where we're going, especially when we went to foreign countries, you know, understanding the cultures behind the foreign countries. Um, so I, I just always really enjoyed my experience. Did you have a favorite place you lived or anywhere? You know, um, loved Mexico City, which was um, the last place that I lived as an Army brat. Um, we spent a lot of time at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, because every other assignment um, from either D.C. or being out of the country uh, was at uh, Fort Sill Field Artillery, home of the Field Artillery. Um, spend a lot of time there and have a lot of really good memories there too. Okay. And so I know you're a proud TCU alum <laughs> and I know you mentioned that they had the early admission, you know, program when you were in high school, but how did you find out about TCU? Was it, you know, something that someone told you about or you sought TCU out? So I was 16 when I was putting in college applications. And so my mother was uh, very much involved in it. And I had an older brother and sister. My sister was at vet school at A&M. My brother had graduated from A&M and was living in Dallas. Uh, and so with my parents being out of the country, uh, naturally we were guided toward Texas schools. And because I didn't have a high school diploma and really had not finished out high school, we were looking for something small and private did a lot of interviewing and TCU was one of them and uh, just felt like it was the best fit, you know, kind of the right size and um, a safe environment close to my brother who was living in Dallas, close to my sister who was down at College Station. So it worked out. You know, so, you know, being an Army brat, moving all across the country and abroad, uh, a lot of people when they leave home for school, it's like a, a little bit of a culture shock. Did you have that same feeling or were you like, Oh, this is, you know, this is like a normal, you know, move for me when you transition to TCU. Oh, I think I was so young, Ty, that it was tough. But the ROTC is what really uh, was a guiding post for me, that and my sorority. But um, a gentleman by the name of Captain Gregory Ellison uh, knew my parents because his in-laws had been stationed with my parents. And um, we saw him the first day, you know, this was back in the day where you walked around the auditorium and you signed up for your classes manually. And so he was there and came out and introduced himself. And I took a ROTC repelling class and he was the instructor. And so I felt like I kind of had somebody that I knew that took me under his wing. And then my, my mother went to University of Missouri and she was a Delta Gamma and she immediately got me in, involved in that process. So I had a community of uh, girlfriends that, you know, I, I made uh, good, good relationships. With. That's good. You know, I like the word that you, you, you said community because, you know, sometimes or I say oftentimes, you know, as a parent, you, you send your child off to school, you want them to find a sense of community. So they're just not, you know, on an island by themselves. So I'm sure your parents appreciate that, but I'm sure it also made your college experience, you know, I guess better, if you will. Yeah, definitely. Um, the, a lot of the girls that I met through the sorority are still very good friends to this day. And TC just, you know, kind of has that, um, you know, it is a community and just a very nurturing, fostering um, environment. So I felt very safe there. Gotcha. And so transitioning to, you know, 
active duty in the military, Desert Storm. I know you, you know, you're a captain, you know, so you are in charge and, and leading as a, uh, forgive me if the, I'm not saying the proper word, a platoon uh, of, of army men and women. How was that as a, as a, as a woman in the army during that time? Well, I'll tell you, I had a really unique experience because I was in the reserves. And so I, my civilian job, which was as a community dietitian, we had seven communities near the Nuremberg area that we supported. Uh, one weekend a month, I'd put on my uniform and I would go do what I was doing as a civilian, but in uniform. Well, then Operation Desert Storm broke out and the commander of um, the division in the hospital was my boss. And she had put in her retirement paperwork um, and was just waiting for it to be finalized. And the war broke out mm. and she came to me and said, I can't do it. You know, I've already put in my paperwork. I'm scheduled to go retire. Um, but they can't backfill me because everybody who would come to backfill me has been deployed to Iraq. Would you put on your uniform and go active duty and take my place? Well, she was a colonel. And at the time, I wasn't a captain. I was a butter bar. I was a lieutenant, the lowest rank officer uh, that you can be. I said, how am I going to do that? And she said, you'll do it. You'll do just fine. So I actually, as a 23-year-old, um, filled a colonel's position huh. during Desert Storm. So I can remember the um, head of the hospital division um, would have his leadership team meetings. And we sat around this big board table and leather wingback chairs. And um, everybody around the table was a male. And everybody around the table was mid-40s to mid-50s, even the director of nursing, which is typically filled by, by a female. So there I was as a lowly butter bar, <laughs> you know, 23 years old, uh, only female. So I, I learned a lot about leadership very, very quickly. Um, great experience, a scary experience. Uh, we were one of three evacuation hospitals in Germany. So, you know, when Desert Storm 1 broke out, we didn't know what kind of casualties we'd have. Uh, the war prior to that was Vietnam. And so we had a plan for the worst, right? right. And um, thankfully we didn't, but, you know, we were one of three. But overnight we took a 100-bed facility and turned it into a 1,000-bed facility, just anticipating that we would have more injury and casualty than we actually did. It was a great experience. I learned a lot. Yeah, it, it sounds like it was a great experience. I'm sure a little bit probably, of, of, you know, fearful of, one, am I prepared, am I ready, but also what to expect because, you know, if you're basing everything off what happened in Vietnam, uh, and now, okay, is this going to happen again? Yeah. Did you did you ever face like you know I'm going to not to use this word or imply, but like imposter syndrome? Mm -hmm. Like, man, I'm, I'm in this room with all these you know decorated individuals who've been in the military twenty plus years, and here I am, a twenty three year old. Yeah, I mean, probably my biggest challenge was the sergeant major that reported to me was a crusty you know, 55-year-old guy that had served in Vietnam. And now suddenly he was reporting to me, a young, you know, 23-year-old female. Um, you know, but you just, you have to bridge the relationships, build the trust, and uh, demonstrate your ability. Even gotcha. though you may not have all of the experience, right? You rely on others to that do have the experience to help you accomplish the mission, but gotcha. Um, gotcha. yeah. And so, you know, you eventually get out the military. I know you mentioned that your your background professionally was a dietitian. Uh, what did you do once you, you know, were out the military? 
I went to work for a contract management company, uh, Compass Group, which is the largest contract uh, management company in the world. Uh, they're based in England, but they have uh, facilities all over the world. Uh, and they, they provide hospitality services, so food and nutrition, environmental services, plant operations as a contractor inside uh, various organizations. And uh, I reached out to them when I was still in Germany and, and landed a position with them in, in Oklahoma. My husband was uh, in law school at Oklahoma City. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. gotcha. And, and so now, you know, you're in the professional world, you're no longer in the military. Uh, you know, were you, did, you, did you know this is what you wanted to do or is it more so kind of this is what you fell into at this point? Yeah, I aggressively pursued working for a contract management company because I knew it would give me more variety uh, in in the job position. I knew I never really wanted to be a clinical dietitian going into a hospital day in and day out. And so I I was very um, thoughtful about who I wanted to work for um, when I got out. And um, I was limited by where we were moving, but I knew I wanted to work for a big multinational company. Gotcha. And so you climb the corporate ladder, you know, uh, various positions. And then, if I'm not mistaken, roughly fall 2019, January, you become the CEO of Tarrant Area Food Bank. Yeah. Well, you, you know, did you know what you're jumping into <laughs> or anything like that? Did your, you know, past experience prepare you for this role? Golly, it's so funny. Um I was contacted by a recruiter for the job and they said, Hey, we've got this great job at the food bank. You know, would you be interested in? And I said, No, you know, you're crazy. No way. Food bank. What would I be doing at the food bank? Um, and they called a couple of times and finally I said, Okay, send me the, the job description. It was 12 pages long, the job description. I thought, Oh man, I'm actually, this is what I thought, really thought this. I'm actually going to have to print this thing and read it because <laughs> it was just that long. So I printed it and I went, you know, like line by line. Have I done this? Do I have some application in my past that I can apply here? And kind of went through and you know, I got halfway through and I thought this is a really cool job. I could really get into this. And I was at a point I had worked in you know corporate America for a long time. And I traveled a lot with my job. And so my connection to this community wasn't what I wanted it to be. And so while I was not looking for a job and I was even kind of resident to even consider it, you know, as I read through it, I'm like, this is my opportunity really to get back into the community that had uh, that I really appreciated had done so much for me and also, you know, give back. And so, you know, I I forget the official day that you, you know, became the president CEO of the food bank. January 7th. I'm not forgetting the day. (laughs) January 7th. And about 60 days later, something happened. Uh, I just can't remember. Oh, COVID and the pandemic. You know, how was that? You know, you're newly a CEO of a new organization, probably still, you know, learning everyone and everything that they're doing. How was that challenge for you? Uh, so I started the job and I knew that there was going to be some transition. And people tell you when you go from for profit to non for profit, you know, you slow your roll a little bit. It's a different environment. You know, take some time to understand the organization. And so I was trying to do that. And I remember it really well, Ty, because I had gone out. I had gone to a fundraiser and we had bid on having dinner with the mayor. 
Betsy Price at the time. And so on May 9th, we went to dinner with, you know, a small group of eight of us with Betsy Price. And some of the conversation at the table was, hey, you know, have you heard about this virus? And, you know, it's not coming here. And I can even remember saying out of my own mouth, yeah, but if it is, you know, we'll be prepared. We've got good hospital systems. We're ready to go. And Betsy was just tight-lipped. She wasn't saying a word. And that was March the 9th. The next morning I woke up and it had hit the paper that we had our first COVID case. Um, and we were getting ready at the food bank for our biggest fundraiser, Empty Bowls, which was to occur the next week. And I walked into the food bank and I thought, gee, what is this, you know, what is this going to be? What is this going to be about? And um, I can remember Stephen Riceside, our uh, chief development and external affairs officer, said, Julie, I think we're going to have to cancel empty bowls. I just don't, I don't see how this is going to happen. This was all so fresh. I'm like, oh, right. no, you know, like, no, we're not going to have to cancel. I mean, surely not. This is our biggest fundraiser. You know, my first few months at the food bank, I can't, as the leader, make a decision to cancel the, right. you know, the biggest fundraising event that we have. And it wasn't 48 hours that, you know, the writing was just on the wall and we, and we had to cancel it. So, no, I would say that they did not tell me that this was going to happen in the first few days. Of my they didn't give you a little crystal ball look and say, oh, you know, this, you know, forget 90 days, I'm going to give you something in 60 yeah. days. You know, and so with your military background and Desert Storm, do you mm -hmm. think that, you know, when you saw or I guess as we all learned that this was real, this was mm -hmm. a pandemic. That that you know muscle memory flip on totally, but without a doubt. So I had you know Desert Storm. I also was uh, working in the airline industry during 9/11, and also went through a pretty significant crisis uh, with that role. So I, without a doubt, um, that those those engines just started running. And you know what are we going to do? What's our contingency plan? And I will tell you, we have a very good team at the food bank, and everybody just jumped into gear and, and you know we started having you know SWAT meetings every day what you know huddling what are we gonna you know, what do we need to do now but we in essence had to turn the business upside down because we could not rely on the community partners who are heavily manned by volunteers many of whom are over the age of 65 and if you will recall during that time and that was a very high risk uh, group of people. So they all said, hey, I'm going home. I'm not going to volunteer. I'm not going to put myself in danger. So we couldn't count on the volunteer uh, force and the partner agencies that we had had prior to COVID to get food into the community at a time when more people in the community needed food than we had ever experienced right. in, ever in the history of the food bank. So um, I think we all operated on a lot of adrenaline for a very very long time but, you know oh this will be a week this will be two weeks it's going to go away right, and, right. and it didn't and it didn't and it didn't it was just one thing after the other after the other so i you know i kicked into gear but i have to really give a lot of credit to the team because they truly uh stepped up to you know at, at, at what point did you you know maybe look yourself in the mirror and say what did i get myself into or did you say <laughs> i'm the right person for this yeah, I really felt like I was in the right place at the right time. I mean, I love a uh, high degree of stress. I mean, obviously, you can you can see that in my past. But um, I just felt like this is just re reaffirmed for me that I had made the right choice and that um, I was put in that position at that time for a reason. You know, I know there's a lot of great things, and I say great, but the impact that the food bank 
uh, was able to do during the pandemic. And I would suggest Google Tarrant Area Food Bank. And you can see all the different great things and accolades that you all uh, received during that. But what was something during the pandemic that 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 you're proud of or, or, or that happened? Of, you know, I'm glad that we did this or we really made a big impact. Yeah, you know, a couple things. One is I can remember watching uh, TV one night, watching the news that come home from the food bank and Tim Love and... Uh, some of the local restaurant leaders were uh, on the news talking about having to furlough or lay off their own staff. And um, I picked up the phone and, you know, John Bunnell, Tim Love called them and said, don't do it. You know, send your people my way because I was losing volunteers being in a confined space. Our volunteer center was not conducive to having volunteers in and, um, we were able to hire their staff, so keep them out of the unemployment lines, keep them out of the food insecurity lines, uh, and with a commitment that when you you know open up for operation, when you're back into the swing of things, you can bring your people back. They'll just be with me during the interim. And so that's something I was really proud of, a creative way to partner within the community to kind of keep the community whole. I think also, um, you know, Judge Whitley did a lot to convene uh, nonprofits uh, and, and for-profits in hospitals. He had a weekly call that brought us all together and we partnered with organizations in ways that we hadn't before. You know, one example that I give is with Meals on Wheels and Catholic Charities, where uh, we, the three organizations came together to deliver meals directly to people's homes for those folks who were stricken, the whole family stricken by COVID, so ho- homebound, elderly, maybe the you know, elderly don't have family nearby or a proxy that can go get food for them. So we found creative ways to work together um, to reach people that um, had we been trying to do it by ourselves, it, it just wouldn't have happened. So. You know, that's a brilliant idea. You know, the well, like, hey, you know, if you're losing your employees or you're furloughing your employees, I need employees. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of people during that time that was uh, adding to their staff like you were at that point. Right. Yeah. It's, it's funny how um, in a state of crisis, um, there are processes that you have to unhinge and and recreate and some of the recreation turns out to be better than what was in place prior to the crisis and that that certainly has happened with us i I mean i think even some of the changes that i made during the pandemic um, i would have made eventually but uh, the covid pandemic forced my hand and in some ways that's probably the silver lining too much change for an organization and the, for the people who work in it can be very upsetting for the people, right, right? right? But because the pandemic was there and these changes needed to be made, people got behind the changes in ways that maybe they wouldn't have uh, without a pandemic. You know, so, you know, we kind of sit in different seats. You know, I went from public servant to uh, private practice and you went from the private sector to, you mm-hmm. know, nonprofit. Uh how was it, you know, from your opinion of the slow bureaucracies of how, you know, mm. nonprofit works to what do you mean we had to jump through this red tape? You know, it, was that a point of frustration or was it like this is different? You know, it's it, uh, it's a great question. I actually when I was considering the job, I reached out to a friend of mine who's the CEO of another large nonprofit in the community and just said, you know, how do you do it? Because she had made the same transition and. She gave me some warnings and some cautions and some advice. 
But then, Ty, because the pandemic hit, a lot of that was not reality for me, right? I was able to move at a pace and make changes and integrate into the organization because I had the pandemic at my back forcing me to do it. And people understood that. So I didn't get the resistance that maybe in other situations uh, you would. I will tell you that this job is as complicated and as worrisome and as um, rewarding as any job I've had. So it's, you know, I manage a $150 million budget. I have 130 employees that work at the food bank. Uh, It's a big job. It it is no slow roll. (laughs) And so how do you go about balancing that, you know, between one, obviously you want to push the organization to the limits, but also um, knowing that you can't push your your, your staff or your resources, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, so fast. It's, yeah, it's a big challenge. And probably of anything, that's my biggest learning as a leader because I'm pretty self-motivated and pretty driven. Um, but I've really in the last year had to say, okay, and all of us, because you kind of gear up. And as I said, this adrenaline hits and you, you know that you're committed to helping the community, care about the community. You know you're getting um, the services into the community that they need. And so it's rewarding. But at some point you do have to kind of say, okay, what, what what are we doing that maybe we don't need to be doing so that the staff doesn't experience burnout and so that you personally don't experience burnout? Yeah, and I'm, I want to ask this question. It might go back to tie in, you know, some a lot of your life experience. You know, I know you, you mentioned you applied for college at 16, uh, you know, I assume going to college at 17. You're a captain in the military at 23. Uh, a lot of things, you know, great things happen at such a young age. Uh, you know, similar to myself, I graduate high school 17, graduate college 20. I'm a licensed attorney at 23. Yeah. Uh, do you sometimes feel like, you know, you need, you want things to happen so fast because that's just what you're all used to? Does it sometimes be like sometimes a hindrance? Or do you think that's a part of the motivation to keep you to go forward because you knew that, hey, this is how my life has always been? Because you've been rewarded yeah. for having that kind of pace, right? Yeah. So it's not a hindrance to me, but it can be a hindrance to others. And I I think that I'm pretty aware of that, right? And so that's where I try to go, okay, uh, how am I prioritizing? How am I influencing others based on that prioritization? And and, um, do I need to change my drive into a different kind of motivation, right? Yeah, you know, what? obviously this isn't about me or anything like that, but you know, one thing that always makes me frustrating sometimes is, People's like, oh, well, you know, you still got your whole life to live. I'm like, well, it doesn't mean I want to delay. You know, if I'm, if I'm deserving of something or if I'm qualified for something, I don't want to just delay it because I got the rest of my life mm-hmm. where I still, you know, it's like, oh, I, I earn this now. So yeah. you know, don't punish me for being, you know, I guess further along uh, professionally or, or, or something along mm-hmm. those lines. Yeah. Life is shorter than you think, right? It and is. so are you making the impact and doing the things that you want to be doing with the life that you have? And so, you know, I know there's a lot of great things in store uh, for the food bank, but, you know, let's just say 30 years from now, we're at your big retirement party from Tarrant Area Food Bank as now there's a $300 million budget that you're operating. (laughs) Uh, You know, you're expanding Denton County and all the West and 350 employees. How do you want to be remembered? What is going to be your legacy? 
Uh, I, I hope that I'm giving back into the community in a way that the community remembers me. I mean, that's part of the thing about being a military brat and being around the military all the time. You never really have an opportunity to uh, plant your roots and let the, let the roots grow. And that's really why the job was so appealing to me. Like I had been trying to do volunteer and trying to do things in the community, but couldn't have the impact that I really wanted because I was traveling so much for work. And this job has given me the opportunity to say, no, I can, I can really call this community my own community. So I hope that the, you know, that's how I remember that I had an impact here. That's good. Well, Julie, thank you again for being willing to sit down and have this conversation with me. Uh, I know you probably spend more time with me than you care to on the board, <laughs> but truly thank you uh, for everything. And I hope uh, Tarrant County and the rest of Texas know the great things that you're doing, uh, under, that, that the food bank is doing under your leadership. Well, I'm honored uh, that you recognized me in your show. I appreciate the time. Thank you for everything you do no. for the food bank. No. Yeah. Thank you.